At this time, we will have our split sermon, Matt Steele, Who is Jesus? Part 1. Good afternoon, everyone. It's good to see familiar faces and faces that we don't see very often. It's good to have you guys here. Uh, before I get started, what day are we? Um, one, two, really? You don't know what day you are now? Right. Number seven. Day number seven. If you'll remember, I kind of print out these... Uh, Calendars, because clearly you need help in counting. <laughs> you know, it does say, and you shall count 50 days. So it's a commandment. You have to take one. No. But if you want to, they're right here. Stick them on your refrigerator, cross them off. Have the kids cross them off each day. Count down to Pentecost. Okay. So the title of my message might be a little confusing. Who is Jesus? I mean, don't we know this already? Isn't this Christianity 101? Isn't this the most basic thing that we should know about our faith? Well, maybe you already do know who Jesus is. Maybe you know everything there is to know about Jesus. Right? Yeah, nobody's going to be that bold. There may be some that I cover that is basic. It is known, and you know it, and you've known it for years. But hopefully, there'll be some things in here that you'll find to be interesting, new, give you a little bit of an insight. Or perhaps, since you don't remember what day it is, you may have forgotten about Jesus. So who is Jesus? If you think about it, our Christian faith is under attack. It's under attack from this world. It's incompatible with this world. So it's highly likely that our perceptions of Jesus, the things that we remember, that we know about Jesus, may have been altered, may have been manipulated by this world and by the prince of this world. In his book, Mere Christianity, C.S. Lewis says this, I am trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him, about Jesus. And this is the foolish thing that he says. The foolish thing is, I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. Hmm. Lewis says, that is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things that Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with the man that says that he's a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God, or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him, which we did, didn't we? 
You can do those things to him. Treat him as a demon. Or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. I think he says it really well, doesn't he? That Jesus was either who he said he was, or he was a fraud and a madman. And you can't take the moral principles that he espouses on one hand and reject the things that he said about himself on the other. If he is to be trustworthy, he must also be true. We need to know who Jesus is. He claimed to uphold the principles of God's law. He supported the commandment of not bearing false witness. If that is the case, then we must also accept that he was truthful when he said who he was. As Lewis points out, we can't have it both ways. We must make a choice. You know, Jesus himself asked this question. You may remember it. In Matthew chapter 16 and verse 13. Jesus had come into the region of Caesarea and Philippi. And he asked his disciples saying, Who do men say that I am? Or I, the Son of Man, am. Who do they say I am? What are people saying about me? Who do they think I am? And in verse 14... They said, well, some say John the Baptist, some say Elijah, others say Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. So let me ask you this. Who do people that you know, people in your life, say that he is? Who do people say that he is? Any takers? Maybe you have some friends that are Christians. Maybe they will give a biblical answer. I have a friend who, well, he just thinks that he's a fraud. Maybe you know some people that think he's a fraud. Maybe you know some people that really don't know anything about him at all. Because that is the world that we live in. But we must ask the question, what do people think about Jesus? Who do they think he is? We've got to ask that question before we can answer it, right? We've got to know where they are before we can try and direct them and give them the answers. So then Jesus says to the disciples, well, who do you think that I am? I kind of have this image in my mind that they're all around a campfire when he asks this question. And all of a sudden, you know, they're all kind of quiet and looking a little shifty and kind of looking away and not wanting to catch his eye, hoping that maybe somebody else will give the answer. Because there's only one person that stands up and says, probably clearing his throat a little bit, <clears throat> um, you are Christ, the Son of the living God. And it's easy to pass over this little statement. But for them, at that time, for Peter, and for all the other disciples around, this was huge. 
Because up until this time, the religion that they had practiced, the faith that they had, and revolved around one being, one God, monotheistic. There's only one God in their mind. Now, we can point to scriptures, we can, we can cite scriptures that contradict that, but that is what they believe. That is the Jewish faith, and it's still the Jewish faith. So, this was huge. This was a significant thing that Peter said. That he believed that Jesus was the Son of God. That was radical. And in many ways, Jesus' response is almost one of surprise, of wonder. Is like, wow. He says, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. So, his Father in heaven, our Father in heaven, revealed to this lowly fisherman guy a part of the nature of God. That Jesus was the Son of God. Who is Jesus? Who is he? Who do you say that he is? You know, it kind of reminded me of um, a company that I'm working for. Companies do this every once in a while, don't they? They, they go through a mission statement. Well, we've got to have this mission statement, this definitive statement that says who we are. Everybody rallies around the mission statement. <laughs> and it's not necessarily bad. But this would be almost like a mission statement. If somebody came to you and asked you to give an account, who would you say Jesus is? If you don't have an answer, you better get one. And quick. Because our entire faith, our eternal salvation hinges on this. And this answer of who Jesus is. Not just for the world, but for each one of us. Who is he? to you and to me. In John chapter 8, we find another group of men. A little different crowd. A little less friendly. But they're still trying to get an answer to this question. And if they're honest, they're just trying to get the answer. But many of them are dishonest. And they're trying to make the answer out of something that isn't. But in John chapter 8, verse 2, it says, early in the morning, Jesus, he, Jesus, came again to the temple. And all the people came to him, and he sat down, and he taught them. So here's Jesus. He's in the temple. It's early. And people have gathered around him, and, and they want to hear what he has to say. And the scribes and the Pharisees brought to him, all of a sudden, you know, just kind of flying into the room. Here's this woman who's caught in the act of adultery, right in the very act. Apparently, dead to rights. I don't know how they knew this. Raises a question. And they said, Teacher, this woman is caught in adultery, the very act. Now Moses and the law commanded us that that person, somebody doing this, should be stoned. But what do you say? And they said, testing him, that they might have something to which accuse him of. 
But Jesus stooped down and wrote on the ground with his finger as though he did not hear. And when they continued asking him, he raised himself up and said to them, He who is without sin among you, let him throw a stone at her first. Cast the first stone. And again he stooped down and wrote on the ground. And then those that heard it being convicted by their conscience, all of a sudden, plop, plop, plop. All the stones get dropped. And they leave. From the oldest to the youngest. The youngest still holding out with some kind of righteous indignation. We're going to get this one. They all go away. Jesus raised himself up and saw no one but the woman. And he said unto her, Woman, where are your accusers? Who has condemned you? Has no one condemned you? And she said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said to her, Neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. So let me ask you this. Did Jesus let her off the hook? Because he said, Go and sin no more, implying that he knew that he, she had sinned. And don't forget, this is the man that can see into the heart. He doesn't necessarily need someone else to give an account. But he said, go and sin no more. Doesn't he know the law? Were the Pharisees wrong in their interpretation? What is going on here? Well, firstly, it's pretty obvious to us. As, and it was probably even more obvious to him, this is a trap. They're setting me up, right? <laughs> but these guys are not smart. Or if they're, they are, Jesus is smarter. He actually did follow the law. These men wanted to pass some sort of judgment. And, and they wanted him to say that, you know, that she should be stoned. Well, for one, there's another time and a place in the Bible that talks about that the Jews didn't really have authority to give that punishment, to sentence somebody to death. I'm sure they probably did it anyway. So for one, they didn't have the authority to do it. Jesus' answer was not only their undoing, it also set the stage for the debate to come. It's clear that Jesus did not contradict the law. He actually upheld it. And you're like, well, wait a second. How did he uphold the law? He himself later references that law in Deuteronomy chapter 19 and verse 15. One witness shall not rise against a man concerning any iniquity or any sin that he commits. By the mouth of two or three witnesses shall the matter be established. So by asking all of those that were without sin to cast the first stone, they left. All these witnesses to her crime, to her sin, left. And so there were no witnesses to lay any charge. And then also, why did they bring it, her to him at all? He wasn't a judge in their legal system. 
There was no validity to this whatsoever. They should have followed the proper process. Jesus was not an authorized judge. Everything that they did about this process, you know, we, what would we call it, due process? They just broke all the due process. And Jesus knew it. He demolished their position with one single statement. And the same time, he upheld the law regarding witnesses. When everyone that had come to accuse her had left, she was the only one left there. And of course, by two or three witnesses, so something be established. And so she was free to go. But he did tell her, sin no more. So to this woman, who was he? Who was Jesus? He was an advocate. He acted as her lawyer. These guys were totally out of bounds. They weren't even following the right legal process. So, as my brother-in-law would have done, he demolished their process. He just demolished it. And then, he acted as a savior. Because he saved her life. Because they would have just stoned her, maybe not right there in the temple, but they would have taken her away. So, he acted as a savior. Now, it may seem like an odd transition, but Jesus used this context of witnesses agreeing to establish a matter. When he turned back to the Jews, you know, there was other Jews and other Pharisees that weren't part of this little incident. And he turned back to them, and he said in verse 12, I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. And the Pharisees therefore said unto him, You bear witness of yourself, and your witness is not true. And Jesus answered and said unto them, Even if I bear witness of myself, my witness is true. For I know where I have come from, and where I am going. And this is not the first time that we see this little phrase, I am. And I want you to see if you can count how many times in this one dialogue Jesus uses this. But you do not know where I come from and where I am going. You judge according to the flesh. I judge no one. At this moment in time, Jesus was not here to judge. He wasn't here to convict. He was here on a mission. And he had very narrow parameters for that mission specific task that he was to, to follow, follow the commandments of his father. As we have seen, he's already been an advocate and the light of the world, a savior. So these so-called teachers of the law judged according to the flesh, according to what they could see. But you know, it's very interesting, isn't it, when you have people that are so embedded in the law and they have this complex legal system, even adding more stuff to it, making it even more demanding on folks. There's one thing that they are completely devoid of as a result. Grace. Grace. What we're counting towards in Pentecost. God's grace. They didn't have it. They didn't have grace for this woman. They didn't care 
even about the execution of the law. They just cared about trying to trap Jesus. That's all they were concerned about. But Jesus says in verse 16, And yet if I do judge, my judgment is true. For I am not alone, but I am with the Father who sent me. It is also written in your law that the testimony of two men is true. I am one who bears witness of myself, and the Father who sent me bears witness of me. So he was following the law. He was a witness to himself, and his father was a witness, showing who he was. And they're like, okay, we've got him now. He's brought up the father. Well, you know, everyone knows that Joseph wasn't Jesus' father, right? So let's question his heritage here. And they said to him, where is your father exactly? Jesus answered, you know neither me nor my father. If you had known me, you would have known my father also. These words Jesus spoke in the treasury. And it's interesting, John points this out. This is inside the temple. And Jesus is boldly saying who his father is. And these guys, I guess, are still not getting it. And no one laid hands on him, it said, for the hour has not yet come. And then Jesus said unto, the, unto them again, I am going away and you will seek me and will die in your sin. Where I go, you cannot come. So the Jews said, will he kill himself? Because he says, where I go, you cannot come. And then he said to them, you are from beneath and I am from above. You are of this world, I am not of this world. Therefore I say unto you that you will die in your sins, for if you do not believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. They just cannot stand before Jesus' arguments. You think about what they're trying to say, and their questions are really pretty weak. And they have no real answers to what he's saying here. And it's almost in frustration when they just like, Who are you, man? Who are that you can talk like this? That you can say the things that you're saying? That you can do the things you're doing? Who are you? And Jesus said unto them, Just what I've been saying from the beginning. I have many things to say and judge concerning you, but he who sent me is true, and I speak to the world those things which I heard from him. They did not understand that he spoke of the Father. And then Jesus said unto them, When you lift up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am He, and that I do nothing of myself, but my Father taught me. I speak these things. And He who has sent me is with me. The Father has not left me alone, for I always do those things that please Him. As He has spoken these words, many believed in Him. He's convicting them. He's convicting the Jews and, and maybe even some of the Pharisees and the Sadducees around him. It's important for us to remember that. And then Jesus said to those Jews who believed him, If you abide in my word, you are my disciples indeed. And you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. And then Jesus answered him. And they answered him, rather. 
We're Abraham's descendants. We've never been in bondage to anyone. How can you say we'll be made free? Now, do these guys live in a bubble? You know, the Israelites, Israel, Judah, carried off into captivity on their different times, timelines. Judah in, in Babylon in captivity. They get pulled back to the land. They get back into the land. But still, they're constantly oppressed by those around them. And at the very time that they say that we're in, not in bondage to anyone, who is ruling in Jerusalem? Caesar. They're under the boot of Rome. I mean, Caesar hardly even knows they're there. They're so tiny to this huge empire. You're, you've never been in bondage? Really? But rather than making that argument, Jesus sticks with his mission. His mission is to liberate men and women from sin. Because he could have made all of those same points. But wait a second. These folks have a temple. They have sacrifices. They have the law. They have all these things that they do. Why are they in bondage to sin? Well, the writer of Hebrews says in chapter 10 and verse 1, For the law, having a shadow of the good things to come, and not the very image of the things, can never, with these same sacrifices, which they offer continually year by year, make those who approach perfect. The law can never make us perfect. All the works of our flesh are insufficient. It doesn't matter what you do with this law. It doesn't matter how many times you read this law. It doesn't matter how many times you obey this law. Or how many sacrifices you do. It cannot make you perfect. For then they would not, for then would they have not ceased to be offered. For the worshippers once purified would have had no more consciousness of sins. But in those sacrifices there is a reminder of sins every year. For it is not possible that the blood of bulls and goats could take away sins. Who is Jesus? Back in John 8 and verse 34, Jesus says, Most assuredly I say to you, whoever commits sin is a slave of sin. And a slave does not abide in the house forever, but a son abides forever. Therefore, if the son makes you free, you shall be free indeed. I know that you are Abraham's descendants, but you seek to kill me because my word has no place in you. I speak what I have seen with my father, and, and you do what you've seen with your father. And they answered to him and said, Abraham is our father. And Jesus said to them, if you were Abraham's children, notice he uses a different word. First time he says descendants. Yes, you're, you're his descendants, but you're not his children. If you were Abraham's children, you would do the works of Abraham. But now you seek to kill me. A man who has told you the truth, which I heard from God. Abraham didn't do this. You 
through the deeds of your father. And then again, they began to question Jesus' heritage, accusing him of being born in a sinful act, not truly having a father. They said unto him, we are not born of fornication, throwing it back at his face as though he was. We have one father, and now they've elevated it. Now God is their father. These guys are pretty full of themselves. Jesus said unto them, If God were your father, you would love me. For I proceeded forth and came from God, nor have I come of myself, but he sent me. Why do you not understand my speech? Because you are not able to listen to my word, you are of the Father, your father the devil, and the desires of your father you want to do. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth, because there is no truth in him. When he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own resources, from his own imagination, from his own plans. For he is a liar and the father of it. Because I tell you the truth, you do not believe me. Which of you convicts me of sin? And if I tell you the truth, why do you not believe me? He who is of God hears God's words. Therefore you do not hear, because you are not of God. And he's saying this standing in the temple. To their face. No fear of what they can do. That they are of the devil. That they follow his ways. How do they follow his ways? Well, we just saw an example with that woman that was thrown in before Jesus. They have no grace. They have no mercy. They seek to win an argument or a debate. They seek to kill a man who has done no wrong. Who has gone around healing the sick will raise the dead. See, these men, and I'm sure women, they follow the devil. They have their own interpretations. They have their own oral tradition. They have their own plans for how the world should work. With their exclusivity, they are in exalted positions. Later in Matthew 23 and verse 2, he would say, The scribes and the Pharisees sit in Moses' seat. Therefore, whatever they tell you to observe, observe and do. But don't do according to their works, for they say and do not do. So in other words, observe what they read out of the law. When they read out of what, what Moses is saying, follow that. The rest of it, don't do. For they bind heavy burdens that are hard to bear and lay them on men's shoulders. But they themselves will not move them with one of their fingers. But all of their works they, they do to be seen by men. They make their phylacteries broad and enlarge the borders of their garments. They love to make breasts, the, the best places at the feasts and the best seats in the synagogues, greeting in the marketplaces and be called by men Rabbi, Rabbi. You know, it's interesting, I watched a video recently on uh, William Tyndale 
and uh, who else was in that? Renee, do you remember? Wycliffe and I can't remember the other guy. Kramer, yes. And you know, they were fighting against the very same haughty, exclusive, you know, way up on high religious orthodoxy. And they wanted to bring the word of God to the common man. And the sacrifices that they took to do that. But one of the things that they rejected was don't call anyone father except your father in heaven. Well, the Jews like that. They wanted to be called rabbi, father. This is the kind of people that were rejecting Jesus and who he really was. Back in John chapter 8 and verse 48, it says, Then the Jews answered and said unto him, Do we not say rightly that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? So you're not even a proper Jew now. So questioned his fathers, who his father was, and questioned his validity to even be a Jew. I guess they didn't figure this out before he entered the temple, right? Should have been out in the court of the Gentiles. Jesus answered, I do not have a demon, but I honor my father, and you dishonor me. And I do not seek my own glory, but there is one who seeks and judges. Most assuredly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he shall never see death. And the Jews like, oh, we know you have a demon now. Never see death. Abraham's dead. The prophets are dead. And you say, if anyone keeps your word, he'll never taste death. Are you greater than our father Abraham, who is dead, and the prophets that are dead? Who do you make yourself out to be? Who are you? They just didn't know. They didn't, they didn't get it. And Jesus answered, If I honor myself, my honor is nothing. It is my father who honors me, of whom you say that he is your God. Yet you have not known him, but I know him. And if I say I do not know him, I shall be a liar like you. But I do know him and keep his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day. And he saw it and was glad. Jesus said that Abraham knew about his day, about his time, about when he would come to this earth and the ministry that he would to do on this earth. I don't know if you've thought about that, but... I mean, there's no account of it, right? But I kind of imagine Abraham may have asked the question when he almost sacrificed Isaac. Why did you have me do this? <laughs> Thought we were friends. <laughs> Why did you do this? And maybe it was at that point that God revealed his plan to Abraham. Why, well, Abraham, you just proved to me that I can do this if you were willing to sacrifice your son. Who knows? It's not recorded, but Jesus did say that Abraham knew about his day and rejoiced for it. Who is Jesus? In verse 57, the Jews said to him, 
You are not yet 50 years old and you have seen Abraham? Really? Jesus said unto them, Most assuredly I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. They finally got it, didn't they? They finally realized what he kept saying all the way through this passage. Did you count how many times he said, I am? I make it about 12, which is a pretty interesting number. Before Abraham was, I am, and they picked up those stones that were left behind from earlier, and they were going to carry on where they left off. Jesus just slipped on out, slipped on by. Interestingly, he passed by. And I'm pretty sure, I forgot to look this up, but isn't that the phrase that is used when when God covers the eyes of Moses and he hides him in the cleft of the rock and he passes him by. So Jesus just passes by them. Who is Jesus? The I am. Who is that? Who is this I am? And why was it that the Jews took up stones to kill him? Well, if you recall back at the burning bush, Moses was called by God be his servant, and to help lead the Israelites out of bondage in Exodus chapter 3 and verse 13. And then Moses said to God, Indeed, when I come to the children of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they will say, What is his name? And what shall I say to them? And God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, Thus you shall say to the children of Israel, I am has sent you. Moreover, God said to Moses, Thus you shall say to the children of Israel, The Lord God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and this is my memorial to all generations. It's interesting, isn't it? There are lots of people, well-meaning, and I don't disagree with their objectives that like to research and understand and want to fully know what God's name is. Whether it be Yahweh or Jehovah, Yahshua, whatever variation. But when Moses asked, how shall I identify you? He didn't use any of those. He used this term, I am. But you look in the Hebrew, if you go to look in like Strong's Concordance for meanings of I am, you'll be there a while. It's quite a list. All kinds of things are listed there. But it's generally accepted that it means something along the lines of the self-existent one. I am that I am. No one created him. He has always been and will always be. He is the one who existed before all things. This is why Jesus answered the question in this way. Because remember, he said, this will be my name. This will be the sign of who I am throughout all generations. So they asked him, who are you? And he said, I am that I am. Who is Jesus? He is the I am. 
He is the creator. He was the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Do you believe in him? I do.